Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 22 to continue this Advent chapter. I'm reading from Matthew 1, starting in verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, these are your words. I pray that we would hear them as such. I pray that you would root them in our heart, that the Spirit would use them like a seed to grow a fresh joy in the advent within us. You can do this by your power, and so we ask boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I think all of us share a similar fear when we come to the Advent season. All of us are afraid, if we are believers and we've experienced the Advent before, um, that we become over-familiar with this thing and with these passages and with these songs and with this idea that Jesus was born in a manger. We've heard it so many times, we don't pause at the mystery of it all. All all of us experience that. That that kind of sentiment of of being disillusioned or over-familiar with something is captured so well in in the brilliant novel, Brideshead Revisited. I promise this will be the last time this year I will quote from that novel. Um, But the main character, Charles Ryder, is experiencing the same kind of thing. He's in the military, and he's being disillusioned with the army, and he likens that disillusionment to what a spouse might feel a few years into their marriage. Listen to the way he describes this. As I lay in that dark hour, I was aghast to realize that something within me, long sickening, had quietly died and felt as a husband might feel who, in the fourth year of his marriage, suddenly knew that he had no longer any desire or tenderness or esteem for a once beloved wife, no pleasure in her company, no wish to please, no curiosity about anything she might ever do or say or think, No hope of setting things right and no self-reproach for the disaster. When nothing remained except the chill bonds of law and duty and custom, she was stripped of all enchantment and I knew her for an uncongenial stranger. Wow. Has your faith ever felt that chill? Have you ever felt that coolness settle on your heart and your mind, and you have ceased to be curious about anything that God in Christ could ever do or say or think? Of course you have. And of course I have. We've all experienced this disillusionment, even and maybe especially in this season. We, we experience this as believers. My hope, my prayer today is that this text and this, this sermon will spark again in us a curiosity about what occurs in the Advent. Now I need to warn you guys of a major nerd alert, okay? A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in the car and I listened to a podcast of men who write homeschool curriculum debating their favorite novel. Let that sink in for a little bit and, and decide if we can still be friends after that. Um, 
the, que- the moderator asked the question, what's your favorite novel? You're stranded on a desert island. You have one novel. What would it be, and why is it your favorite? Um, he immediately made the caveat that uh, you also have with you the Bible, and you have major epic poetry and Shakespeare and a few key nonfiction texts. And as the moderator is saying that, you realize that things are getting out of hand. And everybody starts debating the scenario about the desert island. Nobody actually answers the question. One guy makes the terrific point, uh, my favorite novel is very different than the novel I would take to the desert island because my favorite genre is dystopia, and that's the last thing that I would want in a desert island, which is a brilliant point. To this day, I have no idea what these guys' favorite novel is, and I'm reminded of all the kind of pitfalls that happen with a desert island scenario. That being said, we are going to attempt a desert island scenario here. I think it's worth it. Bear with me. Don't make caveats. Here it goes. You have read your Bible in its entirety, okay? You're familiar vaguely from cover to cover. If you heard the name David with reference to the Bible, you would know he was a king. If you heard Abraham, you would know something about a promise of blessing made to him. You've read it, but you become stranded on a desert island, And all you have with you when you come to on the beach is a sopping wet page of your Bible and it's Matthew 1 and nothing else. Now keep caveats aside. I submit to you that if that's all you have of your Bible, part of what we just read today, there are a thousand ways to preach the gospel from this tiny 25 verse text and it will take you your entire lifetime on that beach to mine the depths of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Now today to prove that to you I'm just going to give you a dozen. I'm going to hit you with 12 quick ways to show how the gospel can be preached from Matthew 1. Every single thing I say today has points and subpoints. It has nuances and aspects that you can go and tease out to the nth degree and prove to yourself that there really are a thousand ways here. Don't try to absorb all of these. I want you to write them down or I want you to listen to this sermon again this week online. And I want you out of this flurry of gospel points to pick one or two or three to chew on and to understand what God in Christ has done for you. In each of these 12, you are going to see the ways in which sin and death, they break, break us. They plague us. They dishearten us. And the ways in which God in Christ restores us. You ready? Hang on to your seat. Here's 12. Number one, Jesus makes new creation. Sin and death, they're not part of God's original creation. They are the noisy gong and the clanging cymbal against God's loving symphony of his handiwork. When we read Matthew chapter 1 in our English Bibles, it begins the book of the genealogy. But when we read it in Greek, it says, this is the book of Genesis. This is the book of new beginnings, the way that Genesis began our Bibles and told us about the first creation. So Matthew begins the New Testament to tell us about the second creation, that God in Christ is going to make all things new. Number two, Jesus makes us kings. Sin and death, they make us powerless. Jesus, in his gospel, he makes us kings. Matthew 1.1, he minces no words to tell us that Jesus is David's son, and David was a king, and Jesus comes from that line of Judah who was promised, the scepter shall never, ever, ever depart from your house. 
If you are a brother or a sister of Jesus in the gospel, then Revelation 5.10 says, you shall reign on the earth. Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards. In seeking conversion, you seek a kingdom. You who are poor, you who are children, have opportunity to obtain a kingdom, to advance yourselves to higher dignity, to more substantial honors, to greater possessions, to more precious treasures, to be clothed in robes of richer splendor, and to fulfill a loftier throne than those enjoyed by the greatest earthly monarchs. It is a crown that you are to run for, an incorruptible crown, to be given to you by the great King of heaven and to be worn by you as long as his throne shall endure. Jesus makes us kings. Number three, Jesus bestows blessing on us. Sin and death, they come like a thief to steal and to kill and destroy, but the gospel brings blessing. Jesus, Matthew 1.1, also tells us, is the son of Abraham, and as such, he fulfills the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to be a blessing. The gospel blesses us. I love when I ask one of the friends of our church, PJ, how she's doing, and she always answers me, um, by the grace of God, I'm blessed. And I kind of roll my eyes and I think, okay, that's a very cute Christian answer. How are you really doing? How's your shoulder? How's your family? How's your nephews? Uh, But PJ is playing a note of the gospel that I often forget. That there is true, substantial, abiding blessing in the gospel. Number four, Jesus includes all. While we're on the topic of him being the, the son and the fulfillment of Abraham, the promise goes on to say that this blessing will be for all the families of the earth. There's not a family, a race, a language, a creed, a country, a person who is outside the saving grace of what God can do in the gospel. Number five, Jesus justifies us. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Do you hear that? Sin and death take the law like a weapon and they hold, us, uh, hold it against us and we see that we have fallen short of the glory of God, but not so with Jesus. He comes to us like we saw last week as Joseph comes to Mary and he does not hold the law and its legal demands against us, but he declares us in the gospel not guilty. Jesus justifies us. Number six, Jesus stays the hand of judgment. Similar to what we just said, not only do sin and death hold the law against us and its legal demands, they are not finished with us until we have experienced the full wrath of God against those who have rebelled. Not so with Jesus in the gospel. He comes to us like Joseph does to Mary. When Joseph did not apply death or divorce to his betrothed, but forgave her and withheld the hand of judgment, so also Jesus does for us in the gospel. Number seven, Jesus lifts our shame. Mary herself, she was spared the utter humiliation of divorce by her marriage to Joseph. In the same way, the gospel lifts our shame. Now, you've got to imagine the scene that we talked about last week, that very soon after Jesus was born, everybody in Nazareth knew because the wedding was hustled and because a baby was born shortly thereafter that something was up with Mary and Joseph and the baby they just had. Most everybody in Nazareth was suspecting adultery. That will plague Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we said from John 8, for the rest of their lives. So every time Mary goes to the well, the public well, to fetch water... There are people in her community 
who love to rub that in her face and they snicker and speak behind her back as she's drawing water. Every time she walks home from the marketplace, she passes the men at the city gates who look past her in disgust. And when that happens, Mary has a choice to make. She can wallow in the shame of a single outcast adulterer or she can lift up her head in the honor that is brought to her by her new identity and say to those who accuse and speak and snicker about her, if you have anything to say to me, say it to my husband, Joseph. That's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. He, he lifts our head from the shame that we experienced. And when we hear our accuser, Satan, make those accusations against us, when we feel a coolness settle on our faith and we're no longer pausing at the mystery of it all, when other people around us accuse us and deride us and look down on us, we can choose to wallow in that old reality or we can say to them, as Mary would have said, if you have anything to say to me, say it to my husband Jesus. He has married me and he has lifted my shame. That brings us to number eight. Jesus marries us. He weds us and we are his betrothed. Number nine, Jesus saves us from sin. We just read that last week in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is our deliverer. Now, he saves us from sin in a lot of different ways. We already said that he justifies us. He declares us not guilty. We already said that he stays the hand of judgment. He does not apply its penalty to us. I want to talk about another way that Jesus saves us from our sin that will figure prominently in Matthew's gospel, and that is this, that Jesus is the new and better Moses that he leads us out of the slavery of sin as surely as Christian Bale led the Hebrews out of Egypt in that movie. Uh, He is the new and the better Moses who deliver us from the sin that so easily entangles us. Jesus saves us from our sin. Number 10, Jesus makes us landowners. If you were paying attention two weeks ago when John read the genealogy, which is no small feat, you would have heard the word deportation three times. Israel was promised an eternal inheritance, the land of Canaan, but they were deported by Assyria and then Babylon, and now they're back hearing this text as guests in their own home country under Roman rule. Sin and death, they displace us. Ever since Adam and Eve were removed for the garden, ever since Israel was deported from their promised land, we have become like landless wanderers. We have no place to call a home. But in Jesus, the church learns to sing together, I am bound for the promised land. According to Hebrews 12, 28, we will inherit a kingdom together that cannot be shaken. Jesus makes us landowners. Number 11, Jesus gives us union with God. This is one of my absolute favorites. Sin and death, they isolate us. We're not just guilty. We're not just ashamed. We're not just landless and penniless. We're not just under the wrath of God. We're not just enslaved and entangled and do the same things again and again and again. We are utterly lonely in the deepest, most spiritually terrifying sense of that word. But verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
the where are you, Adam and Eve of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 has become the God with us in Matthew chapter 1. We are united with Christ in the gospel and he dwells with us. Number 12, Jesus animates countercultural obedience. Now in verses 18 to 25, you really have a flurry of miracles that are happening in this small section. Miracle number one is the Immaculate Conception. The Holy Spirit breaks into this present order, visits Mary, a virgin, and she conceives a son in her womb who will be the Son of God. That's, that's a big miracle. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two An angel now invades this present order and appears to Joseph in a dream and speaks divine revelation to him. That's that's the second miracle that happens in this passage. But listen to this third miracle. Joseph, who's a simple, a flawed, a fearful man. We know he's afraid because the angel has to come to him and say, Joseph, don't be afraid. Watch this. He puts aside everything he ever thought he knew about the Old Testament and religion. He put aside every hope he had for his community's approval of him and what he did. And verse 23 says, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph obeyed God. That's a miracle. That's something that Joseph cannot bring out of himself, but that God, by the power of his spirit, brings in Joseph and brings in us. He orders and animates this brand new kind of obedience that's humble, it's loving, it's serving, it's others-seeking, it's God-glorifying. It looks a lot like when you're watching a Christian go through the city of Columbia, like a person who has taken the cross of Jesus on their shoulder and follows after their Savior. Jesus animates a countercultural obedience. That's, that's a dozen ways to preach the gospel. I'm going to give you a baker's dozen. Here's 13. Jesus joins us with a heavenly reality. Sin and death, they bend, bend us inward on ourselves. We and, and the fleeting things around us become our ultimate reality. It's like sand passing through our hands, but to us, in some sick and twisted way, it is what's ultimate to us. But by the end of Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, a man, finds himself working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with an angel to build the kingdom of heaven together. When we are in Christ, there's nothing we do in him that's in vain because everything we do in Christ will last forever. We join a heavenly reality. When we're discipling a little child, an infant, or a toddler at our breakfast table or downstairs in our nursery, then Matthew 18 says we are working side by side with angels who always see their father's face. When we watch someone cross from darkness to light, when we see them converted in this same gospel, then Luke 15 tells us that all of heaven rejoices. Angels rejoice with us in this earthly work that we do. When we stand up on Sunday morning and we sing off key, when we worship God while we're washing dishes, Revelation 4 tells us that our small, still voice joins an eternal chorus of men and women and elders and living creatures who are at the same time falling on their faces and casting down their crowns and worshiping the God of heaven. In Christ we join an animated heavenly reality. That's, that's 
13 ways to preach the gospel from Matthew chapter 1. You take this thing home, and you're going to find a hundred more, even as you tease out the 13 that we just said. Matthew 1 really operates like a funnel. It begins with a wide mouth in the opening of this chapter because we get a genealogy which allows us just in a couple of verses to span 2,000 years of redemptive history. All that comes in the top of the funnel. And as we work our way through the chapter, every promise that's been made, every prophecy that's been heard, every command that God has given, every character who's risen up as a type, every hope that the people of God have ever had comes down that funnel and into its chute and lands on the very last word of our English chapter. The entirety of all of this and the thousand ways the gospel plays falls on a little baby boy born in Bethlehem whose name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would take the chilling bonds of custom and law and duty that so plague our Advent season and you would break them. And you would warm our hearts by the majesty of this kind of gospel that there are a thousand ways in which you in Christ Jesus have broken sin and death in our lives and in our church and in this world and that you will make all things new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.